It's three times holy. Amen. What a great reminder of who we serve. If you have your Bibles, uh, take them out and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Most experts will tell you that uh, the key to being good at anything is not just to practice doing that thing, but to practice it with precision. Practice doesn't make perfect. That old adage, practice makes perfect, it's not right. If you're practicing and you're doing it the wrong way, you're not going to get perfect. You're just going to be better at doing it the wrong way. Perfect practice makes perfect. That's why we have to take so much time and effort into the way we construct our practice sessions in golf and tennis and football and baseball, basketball, whatever your uh, line of uh, activity is, uh, bow hunters. Uh, one of the things that we can talk about during, during hunting season in Alabama is we can get some good analogies out of it for Scripture. But if you're bow hunting, if you've ever shot a, a bow and arrow, and I know that uh, Josh Barahona made the, the archery team uh, at school, so that's great. I guarantee you when, when he's practicing, if he's getting good enough to make the team, he's practicing the same way every time. You have an anchor point. You have a release thing that you do. You breathe in. You breathe out. Whatever, whatever your mechanism is, you do it consistently, and that's what we're, we're looking for when we're trying to get better at something. Most experts will also tell you the key to being consistent in anything is to focus on the activity rather than the end result. Okay, you're focusing on your practice. You're not focusing on the end result. Um, Nick Saban is the head coach at the University of Alabama. He's won over 250 games in college and six NCAA national championships in his career. He is famous for having this thing he calls the process, and everybody hears it uh, probably, if you're not an Alabama fan, ad nauseum. Uh, but that leads to the success of his team. And, and when asked about it, he points to a game back in 1998 when he was at Michigan State. They were playing Ohio State. Ohio State was number one. They were really rolling, and Michigan State wasn't very good. And, and here's what he says about that game and describing the game. He says, they had been number one all the way through, and we were four and five and not a very good team, and we won that game. Here's what he says. We decided to use the approach that we're not going to focus on the outcome. We're just going to focus on the process of what it took to play the best football you could play, which was to focus on that particular play as if it had a history and a life of its own. So they beat Ohio State that year. They went 6-6, six and six, not great. But since that point, since that season, he has not had a losing season, a losing record in a season in college as a head coach. Now, I'm using that example not because I'm a fan of his team, but because I'm a fan of anybody who can consistently excel and do things at the highest level. And for us, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we can use that same approach to make us more effective followers of King Jesus, more effective witnesses, more effective disciple makers, evangelists, teachers, preachers, worship leaders. Anything that we do for the kingdom, we can use that same approach and since we're talking about Thanksgiving this month, I wanted to focus our attention today from Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21, on this thought, consistency in Thanksgiving. Consistency in Thanksgiving. And I know most of y'all just got settled, but if you would, let's stand. We're going to read these verses. And I want you to listen, and we've done this before, but I want you to kind of put yourself in the position of a, a church member in early uh, New Testament times in Ephesus around the first century. And I want you to listen to this as if you're hearing these words read 
from the Apostle Paul's letter for the first time. Verse 15, he says, Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Can anybody in here echo that sentiment that today we know in 2020 the days are evil? He says, So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless action, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, or filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord. And here's the key verse of everything we're going to talk about today, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of of Christ. Father God, I beg you to speak today through your spirit, through your holy word, through your servant, all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to get two primary ideas, overarching ideas today I want you to take away. And the first one is in the first three verses, 15 through 18, walk consistently in thanksgiving. Walk consistently in thanksgiving. He says here to pay careful attention to how you walk. That's the process. The process is not the end result. Focusing on heaven is not going to get you the results that you want. Focusing on uh, the ideal weight or the ideal body size or body image. Focusing on the the marathon. Focusing on the the World Series. That's not going to get you the results that you desire. Focusing on that day. Listen, if you're studying your Bible, focus on that day, on that moment in God's Word. Not when, you, not when you read the last verse in Revelation, the last chapter, but what are you reading right now? What is God trying to speak to you about right now? Not where you're going in 20 years and 30 years and 50 years, but what am I doing right now? What is God saying to me right now? That's our focus when we're going to work through this thing with consistency. And if we're going to be consistent, it begins with our walk. He says to pay attention to how we walk. He says to walk wisely. And he says to make the most of our lives on earth. And we're to be sober people. All of these things will never be realized unless we're consistent. To be successful, we need to walk out what God has put in. Let me give you a bunch of verses. This this theme echoes through the New Testament. Ephesians 5.2 tells us to walk in love. Ephesians 4.1, he says, walk worthy of the calling you've received. Colossians 2.6, he says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Colossians 2.6, as, uh, sorry, just read that one. 1 Thessalonians 4.12, walk properly in the presence of outsiders. So he's saying there that our walk is not only important as God sees it, our walk is not only important as the church sees it, our walk is important as the outsiders, the ungodly, the unsaved see it. And then again in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he says, walk worthy of God. Can I just tell you this morning, if you're trying to walk worthy of God, you're going to have failures because you're made of flesh. If you're trying to walk in the Spirit, you're going to be successful, but your flesh is always going to be pulling at you and make you unsuccessful at times. 1 John 2.6, the one who says he remains in him, talking about Christ, should walk just as he walked. And then 2 John 1, 6, and this is love that we walk according to his 
commands. This is the command as you have heard it from the beginning. You must walk in love. Jude 1.18 tells us that in the last days, those without Christ will walk, quote, according to their own ungodly desires. My goodness, is that not the days we're living in? The ungodly will walk in their own ungodly desires. They live in it. They, they, they simmer in it. And then the latter part of Revelation 21 says that in heaven there will be no need for the sun, S-U-N, or the moon, because watch, God's glory illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then it goes on to say this, that everyone there will, quote, walk in its light. What am I saying? To walk in its light there, we have to walk in the Lord here. We can't focus on walking in the light. You ever heard this? I can't remember who to quote this to, but don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That's what I'm talking about. When you, co- when you totally focus on, oh, heaven's going to be so great and I can't wait to get there, and then you walk right past needy people. You walk right past lost people. You walk right past opportunities that God's given you to serve Him on this earth because you're so focused on getting to heaven that you don't do any good down here. Listen to me, church. You are not called out of your sin. You're not called out of death into life. You're not called into the living Word of God to be a heavenly person. That's not what your call is. If we were called into Christ to go to heaven, we would go to heaven when we prayed. Our calling is to walk in the Lord, walk worthy of our calling. Watch, be careful how you walk so we can lead others to heaven. Heaven is the cherry on top of the Sunday. Some of us want to eat the cherry and dump the Sunday in the garbage. I can tell you that's not a good approach. That's not what we're called to do. We are practicing our walking in the sun here, S-U-N, so that we can walk with the sun there, S-O-N. Walking consistently in Christ will help us make sure that our lives count. C.T. Studd, which is one of the coolest names, by the way, of any theologian. Let me just put that out there. He's a great British missionary from around the turn of the 20th century. He wrote a poem that said, Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And a lot of you have heard that quote. Let me give you another one from him. He said, if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Jesus said that same kind of concept this way in Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. When we fail to live a life that counts, when we fail to spend our life on what counts, those are the places that we mess up. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said this, If anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The early New Testament church that first heard these words the, the early believers, the Jews and the Gentiles who, who were, were experiencing this, heard him say, if anyone desires to come after me or to walk with me to go to heaven, like I'm going to go to heaven, they need to take up their cross. When they heard that, they would understand it better than we do. We don't have a concept of what they're talking about. When, they, when we say, take up your cross, a lot of us think about our burden or our struggle or our thorn in the flesh. Paul talked, that's not what we're talking about. When Jesus said, take up your cross, here's what he meant, church. 
Go to the place they will murder you. Go to the place that they will torment you. Go to the place that you will suffer and die. That's what it meant to take up your cross. Jesus took up his cross and he walked it down the Via Della Rosa to get to Calvary where they put his cross in the ground and nailed him to it. And he hung there and died for our sins. Your cross is not your burdens. Your cross is your call to live as Christ and to die to self. In 1 Timothy 2, or sorry, 2 Timothy 2, 3, uh, he tells us, he tells, uh, Paul tells Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share in suffering. The call of Christ to walk the path he walked is a call for us to walk to our death. I told you last week, every Christian is not called to be a martyr, but every Christian should be prepared to be a martyr. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another famous martyr, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, said this, When Christ bids a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time, death in Christ Jesus, the death of the old man at his call. Does anybody know the name Ernest Shackleton? I'm just interested to see if there's any history buffs out there. Ernest Shackleton. Okay, we got a few. Ernest Shackleton led the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition in 1914. That's a long way to go in 1914, y'all. Here's what he said. He, he put an advertisement for recruits. He was trying to go on this mission and achieve fame and fortune. And here's what his advertisement read. You ready? Why don't you listen to this? Now imagine you're reading this in the newspaper. All right, Donnie, you're a young man and you're, you're looking for activities and you're looking for adventures and you're looking in the want ads in the newspaper and you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. And listen to what it says. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, Long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Now, Donnie, be honest with me. When you read that article as a young man, you read that one out, are you going, hey, where do I sign up? Are you charging down to the newspaper and rattling the doors and saying, hey, tell me what, tell me what, what address to go to to get involved in this? Here's the Here's the deal. That really is the call to follow Christ. It's very similar, the call to follow Christ. The, 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 the problem we have, the, the failure we have in the, in the new church, in the, in the American church, is that we don't want to tell people that. We want to tell people, come to Jesus and all your problems go away. Come to Jesus and everything will be perfect. If you come to Jesus, he'll fix everything in your life immediately. And that's just a lie. Here's what it is. Come and die. Come to Jesus and lay your life down for him. Come to Jesus and deny self and take up your instrument of death and follow him wherever he leads. Here's the only real difference in those two. His said honor and recognition in case of success. Ours are not conditional because success is guaranteed in Jesus if we walk consistently after him. Notice that the call there is a call to walk and not to stagger. 
He says in verse 18 not to get drunk with wine because it leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the Spirit. The word filled there is the Greek word pleuroo, pleuroo, and it means to fill or to supply abundantly with something. Now watch this. this. This verb is a present imperative, which means it's not optional, and it involves continuous, repeated action. I'm so excited about this. I can't hardly stand it. To be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit. Let me say that again. To be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit. Why? Because it is the Spirit of God. It is the third of the three-part trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit living in us. If we have the Spirit, we have the onboard navigation system to have success in life. But when we pour alcohol or drugs or anything else on top of that, we dilute our ability to listen and follow and obey the Spirit. A consistent walk is a sober walk. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, and whoever staggers because of them is not wise. Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 33 says it this way, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has conflicts, who has complaints, who has wounds for no reason, who has red eyes? Can I just, time out, can we just tell the truth and stay in the church? When I'm reading that, I'm thinking about Kevin in the Navy. I'm thinking about Kevin in college. I'm thinking about Kevin, B.C., before Christ. And here's what the, 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 the proverb writer says. Those who linger over wine, that's the answer. Those are the ones who look stupid, who have conflicts and wounds for no reason and red eyes. Those who linger over wine, those who go looking for mixed wine, don't gaze at wine because it is red. When it gleams in the cup and goes down smoothly, watch. In the end, it bites like a snake. It stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and you will say absurd things. I can relate. I've experienced it. I'm just trying to help you. If you've never experienced it, let me save you some pain and say, don't do it. It's not worth it. When the angel appeared to Zechariah in Luke 1, talking about John the Baptist coming, here's what he said about him. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. Can I just tell you, anytime we can be more like John the Baptist without eating locusts, that's a good thing. So the first thing we're told, we're looking at here is to walk consistently in thanksgiving. The second thing is to worship consistently in thanksgiving. And I want to be key here. I want to be clear we're, we're talking about worshiping, not singing. That singing is an aspect of worship. It's a mechanism of worship, but it is not worship in and of itself. Note the call here is to worship and not to worry. When we worship, we tell God he is all we need. When we worry, we tell God that was a lie. I'm going to say that again because that was, that was something that wrecked me when I was writing this. When we worship, we tell God he is all we need. When we worry, we tell God that was a lie. Hudson Taylor said it this way, Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Let me just share with you that through this season of, of, of uncertainty, unknowns, and this, this stretches back a couple of years. When, when I, I told this story one time, I don't know if I've told this to you, but I, one, one Sunday, I was filling in for Brother Charles, and God was dealing with me with this call to preach, and I didn't really understand it, didn't really know what was going on. I was kind of, almost kind of reluctantly listening to God. I was like, okay, God, but I, I'm, not sure that's my, I'm not sure that's my niche. I'm not sure that's my good, I'm good at leading worship. I feel comfortable doing that. I've done it for a while. I, I know what I'm doing. 
And, and I was filling up for Brother Charles one Sunday, and he told me that the week before, he said, uh, we're, we're actually not leaving until around lunchtime, so we may come to the early service. <laughs> Wait now. That wasn't in the deal when you asked me to fill in for you. So I was nervous. I was scared. I was sitting over here, and I was shaking. And I glanced over one time, and I saw him and Vanita, and they were sitting right back there, kind of where Zandri is, but it looked like there was a light shining right on them. I could see them. They stood out. I could see them sitting over there. And so I'm sitting over there, and I, we're getting closer to the end, and uh, singing's going on, and all I can think about is i got to get up and preach in front of this guy who's been preaching probably longer than I've been breathing, and I'm, I'm scared to death. And let me tell you something. When, when I stood up out of that chair and I started up on this stage, I never thought about him again. I never, I never had another trepidation. I never had another fear. never had another hesitation. I walked up and I put my Bible down and I said, Thus saith the Lord, whatever God had put in me to give to you, I said it. And walking off that stage that day, I knew that God had called me to preach. It was, it was cl as clear as any other call I've ever heard in my life. God had called me to preach. And it's because I had let go of my own fear. I'd let go of my own worry. So now back up about two years from today, I'm dealing with this thing. I'm trying to figure out what God's calling me to do and how it's going to look. And I'm asking God, okay, if you call me to preach, I can't do that here. That job's filled. So what does that look like? And where are we going to go? And we had different people talking to us. And, and we, I'm just being honest with you. I sent a resume or two out. And I'm, I'm praying for God to show me his direction. I know what he's called me to do. And then that day, uh, Brother Charles came in and met with the staff and said, I'm going to, I'm going to retire from, from pastoral ministry and I'm going to take this job at a camp. And it, it floored me. And I thought, well, still not going to be preaching here, <laughs> but that just changes the dynamic. If he's leaving, I don't want to leave everybody in the lurch. So how's, I'm, all I'm thinking about at that point is timing, okay? Why? Because I was scared, because I was afraid. Now, all this stuff happened with Laney, and I was scared. I was afraid. It started out as, a, as, a, as an annoyance. You know, she was getting headaches, and she was having a little bit of puffiness around her eye. And then back in late March, both of her eyes looked like they were going to pop out of her head. The swelling had gotten so bad, and she was in such pain. And it was right in the throes of the COVID lockdown. And, and I was worried, and I, I, I'm, just tell, I'm just being honest with you. I'm not trying to stand here and be ministerial. I'm trying to stand here and be open and transparent. I was scared to death that my daughter was going to die, that she had cancer. I was scared she was going to lose her vision, lose her eyesight. And I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm wrestling with God every moment of the day. And can I just tell you that through that time, he's been so good to just speak peace in my soul through scriptures, through songs, through some of you that have sent beautiful texts and letters and notes just encouraging and, and telling me that you're praying for me. God has, God has revealed himself to me in different ways over these last two years through the uncertainty of my calling and, and then getting the, the greatest blessing in my ministerial life to be able to be your pastor and then watching him care for Laney through all of this stuff and all this uncertainty. You, you have to get to that place where you really mean it when you tell God you trust him. But also note that worship is is both internal and external. I think that's key for us to understand what God is calling us to do and how we can worship consistently. We see it in these phrases where it says, speaking to one another. And then it says, making music to the Lord in your heart. 
So, so that's the external. We're speaking to one another. That's what I'm doing now. I'm worshiping externally right now because I am giving you what God has put in me when I wrote this sermon. Grayson was doing that. Our worship team, what an amazing team we have. 40 some odd people that rotate through. They are all gifted and talented. They are worshiping externally by sharing that with you. But I'm going to tell you this, and, and the team will tell you that I've been talking to them about this for five years. If you don't worship internally Monday through Saturday, you can't worship externally on Sunday. Note that Paul's emphasis is on the variety of mechanisms of worship Uh, not just the styles or categories of worship music. When he says that psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, y'all do know he's not talking about the Baptist hymnal of 1968. There was no Baptist hymnal in the first century church where Paul was talking about them. Uh, Adam Clark, a British Methodist theologian, said, we can scarcely say what the exact difference is between these three expressions. So it's not that he's saying we worship through a certain type of music, but he's saying there's a mechanism by which we worship externally, and it's psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's basically saying that everything we sing needs to sing to the glory of God. External worship without internal worship is a disgusting contradiction to God. Speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 15, Jesus said, You hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. See, that's external without the internal. And then he also said it again, talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, when he said, Woe to you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but are full of dead men's bones and every impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, I thought this was interesting. The Greek phrase for whitewashed tombs, listen to this, koniao tapas. Doesn't that sound pretty? If you were talking to, I thought about uh, Despicable Me when he asked the lady if she spoke Spanish, and he said, your face is con bruro. He called her a donkey. <laughs> but it sounds pretty when you do it. So you, you think about this term. If somebody said, ah, koniao tafas, you'd be like, ah, oh, thank you. Cleaned up pretty good. But what he's calling there is whitewashed tombs. Let me give you a visual. Here's the first one. Look how pretty that is. Tammy Holt wrapped that for me. Isn't that pretty? Looks like it's done like a, by a professional gift wrapping company. Now, here's the question. <clears throat> when you're looking at this, does anybody want what's in this? Does anybody want this gift? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> does anybody want this gift? All right, we have somebody. Now, what if I told you what was in it? I went out to a cow pasture. <laughs> and I made a withdrawal. And I put it in this pretty box, and Tammy wrapped it all pretty. Do you still want it? That's a whitewashed tomb. Let me give you another one. Anybody want a free cup? It's a Yeti. Anybody want a Yeti? We got one back there. Luke wants it. Anybody else? Now, what if I told you, and this is the truth, this cup's been here for three weeks. Is that right? I've got, 
<laughs> Anybody want it? Why? Because it's not what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. What's on the outside can be appealing, but you're going to have to deal with what's on the inside. When you open the present, when you take the lid off the cup, when you get into the inside of it, you're not going to like it. Why? Because it is a whitewashed tomb. It is a kiniotaphos. It is beautiful on the outside, but inside it's full of hypocrisy and lies and dissent and trouble and just all this negativity. That's what we look like when our worship is only external and it's not internal. John 4, 24 and 25 says this, but an hour is coming. This is Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. Some translations say the Father seeks those who worship him that way. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That is pneuma and aletheia in the Greek, and it means the leading of the spirit and the facts. It means the head and the heart. True worship is more than emotion. It's also understanding. In order to worship, we must be willing to be thankful always for everything, as he says in verse 20. Worship out of emotions can never be consistent because our emotions vary wildly depending on our circumstances. And worship out of understanding only can never be adequate because we are so much wrapped up in who we are in our emotions. So to be consistent in worship means to be thankful to God for who he is with all we are all the time. That's consistency in worship. And then Paul gives this odd statement to close. He said, submitting to one another in fear. Submitting there is uh, hupostasso. And it means to be under in rank, to rank beneath. And then fear is phobos, which is where we get our word phobia, which is a deep and reverential sense of accountability to God or to Christ. So we are to think of ourselves under in rank of everybody else so that we can let them know who Christ is because we have that that clear understanding of the glory of God in Christ that we can understand that we should be in awe of him, which is not just fear and trembling, but it's fear from understanding, that we see who he is, we know him for who he is and all that he can do. Galatians 5.13 says don't use it. We're given freedom. We're called to freedom, but don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Philippians 2.3 says do nothing out of a rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. 1 Peter 5.5 says in the same way, you younger men, be subject to the elders, not the elders of the office, but the older senior adults. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And then he says because, and the because he quotes Proverbs 3.34, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then 2 Corinthians 5.11, he says, therefore, because we know the fear of the Lord, we seek to persuade people. So we're not only able to subvert our own desires and serve others when we fully understand all we are and that we are accountable to our King. So we're to walk consistently in thanksgiving. We're to worship consistently in thanksgiving. And both of those, our walk and our worship, have have to be a symbiotic relationship. In other words, they depend on one another. They're different things, but they rely on each other in order to thrive. These two acts coincide with one another, and each requires the other to be complete. To worship correctly, we must walk properly. And to walk correctly, we must worship properly. 
If you don't understand your responsibility to God, it's because of problem in your relationship with God. If you desire to truly know and follow Jesus, you must have a desire to grow in your consistency in thanksgiving. And that begins with surrendering your life wholly to Christ and coming under his authority. The next step is God growing you in the likeness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And then Romans 8.29 says, Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So if you've never started that journey, today would be a great day to do so. If you're not where you want to be on that journey, today would be a great day to dedicate yourself to improving in the areas of walking and worshiping consistently in thanksgiving. My prayer for you today is that whatever God is speaking to you, whatever God is prompting you to do, that you'll respond in grace and obedience and humility. And you'll give everything to Him. If you would, let's stand. If you will please bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Again, I believe that the gospel is something that's important enough that it demands a response from us. So if you're here this morning and you heard what I said and you, you know in your heart that you have never surrendered to Christ, there's no way you can ever be consistent. You're going to be like a leaf blown in the fall winds. You're going to be like a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. But you need to know there is a God in heaven that loves you, loves you to the point that he gave his son to die in your place, to die for your sins. If you've never surrendered to Christ, now is the time. Move now. We're not going to wait long. If you've never surrendered to Christ, come forward now and publicly make that declaration of faith. If you're here this morning and you have surrendered to Christ, but you've never uh, really followed through, you've, you've, or maybe you did for a little while, but now you've backslidden, you're not really serving Him the way you should, maybe you're convicted this morning about the consistency of your walk and your worship. Come now. Let us talk to you. Let us pray with you. Let us give you some guidance on how to truly surrender wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're here this morning and you say, Brother Kevin, I've done all that, but I don't have a church home where I can serve effectively, where I can put down deep roots and I can grow in my faith. If you need to do that, do that right now while we wait. Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for your word. I pray that, God, you would continue to speak it into our lives. Long after the sermon is over, God, I pray that your spirit would continue to speak to our hearts. Convict us where we're not consistent for you in our work or in our worship. God, make us all that we can be through Christ for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.